This is Parsha Panorama, and this week's Parsha is Parshas Vizosa Bracha, here at the database with Rabbi Yoshua Eisenberg. And Vizosa Bracha means that we are seemingly at the end of the line. Here we are at the cusp of Simchas Torah. But you know, as the old cliche goes, it's not the end, it's just the beginning. And the question is if that cliche has any bearing on us where we stand today at the end, at uh, the completion of the Torah. And we'll see what that means for Parsha Panorama. I'm not really sure, honestly, what it means for Parsha Panorama. I am still happy to hear recommendations on what we can do for the coming year. I am hoping to do a shorter series, if anything at all. But um, enough of that for now. What I want to focus on now is the actual Parsha, Parsha's Vizosa Bracha. What's in the Parsha? What is the end of the Parsha? and the end of the Torah really all about. Now that we've made it this far, what are we supposed to take away from the end of the Zosabracha, the end of the Torah, the end of Sefer Devar? And part of answering that question is going to address this cliche that I keep on mentioning, that it is, in fact, not the end. We're going to hopefully try to prove that right now, or at least in, in the next 20 minutes to a half hour, Hopefully we'll contain it within that amount. And we'll hopefully have some hisorus, some inspiration for Simchas Torah while we are here. In the meantime, I want to thank you for having listened throughout the entire series, making it this far. And I hope that you've gained from this series, and hopefully Bezrat Hashem in the future, we will be able to come back to these parshios. You can always go back and listen to Parsha Panorama again and get a stronger grasp. Another theme that we will see emerge from this Parsha Panorama, as I believe it's what the Torah is speaking to us about in this Parsha. But let's get to the components of the Parsha. We do know that at large, the global aspect of Zosah Bracha is that these are... Moshe Rabbeinu's final words. Now, most of Sefer Devarim is Moshe Rabbeinu's final words, but these are the real final words because these are the last possible words he can say because the Torah is going to end and Moshe Rabbeinu is going to pass away. So, indeed, we get Moshe Rabbeinu's final words, which include, and uh, not only include, but basically are blessings to Klal Yisrael. And then, of course, we get to Moshe Rabbeinu's passing. And with Moshe Rabbeinu's passing, we also get to his eulogy. It's not... Often, in fact, I don't know if anywhere at all does the Chumash explicitly give a eulogy for someone. We have the description of eulogies having taken place. When Yaakov Avinu died, a eulogy is described. We don't have his eulogy, but we have the description of people having eulogized him. When Sarah Inenu passed away, we had it. When Aaron Cohen passed away, we had it. But when it comes to Moshe Rabbeinu, when he passes away, the Chumash actually goes at length to describe who he was as a person, which is... Interesting. So one question that I think we will hopefully try to address is why, in fact, Moshe Rabbeinu is granted this eulogy in, in the Torah. And granted, if anyone deserved it, it would have been him. But is the Torah really the place for it? And maybe it is. But maybe there is another takeaway and a take-home point to the Torah. If the very last message of the Torah is, in fact, the praising of Moshe Rabbeinu. And we know that there are several components to this praise, some of which are really staggering as a final point in the Torah. And for those who know what I'm referring to, the very last words of the Torah, Le'enei kol Yisrael, and what they reference. So it seems to be a very interesting accomplishment, if we can call it that, to highlight. 
um, what exactly Moshe Rabbeinu's greatest accomplishment was, take a look at Rashi on those last words in the parsha, the very last words in the in the parsha, the very last words in the Torah, Le'enei Kol Yisrael, that which Moshe Rabbeinu did before the eyes of Yisrael, and try to think about why, in fact, that is the takeaway point of the Torah. We'll come back to that when we get to the end. But first, let's talk about the different components of the parsha. We gave the overview of the parsha. But now let's break it down a little bit more. We have the Birchas Moshe, which begins, so this will be section one, the blessings of Moshe Rabbeinu, which have parallels of sorts to the Birchas Yaakov, where Moshe Rabbeinu addresses each tribe, just like Yaakov Avinu addressed each one of his children who became the Shvatim. So this Birchas Moshe starts with a general, a broader Shevach of Hashem, and actually a review of Kabbalah Satora, a recap, a poetic description of Kabbalah Satora. This is fascinating in its own right, because right here by Simchas Torah, there's some who, see, who suggest that Simchas Torah is in a certain sense a, a rejuvenation um, and, a, and itself a recap of Kabbalah Satora. It's a re-experiencing of Kabbalah Satora. Um, not for now, but there's a lot to be said about the parallels um, on the calendar between Simchas Torah and Shavuos, the day of Kabbalah Satora. If Shavuos is about Kabbalah Satora, the, the commitment to Torah, so maybe in a certain sense, um, Simchas Torah is about recommitment. Something that we spoke a little bit about in the Hoshana panorama here, if you want to go back to that. Um, but all of that said, um, there, there's what to think about there, and maybe we'll even come back to it later because I do think it's going to be relevant. But we get this Shevach of Hashem and Kabbalah Satora in a recap, and then we get to each of the Shvatim, or do we? Right? Do we get to each of the Shvatim? We mention all of them except for one. There is a missing child. And what we'll, we'll have to talk about is why, in fact, there is a missing child, where's the missing child, and um, can we find him somewhere? So that's, there's that. And then we have like a little epilogue, a very strange epilogue to the Berchas Moshe, where Moshe Rabbeinu gives him a very broad blessing, but also very vague and a cryptic blessing, describing seemingly what's going to happen or what should happen when they enter Eretz Yisrael. Then the second section, we get to Moshe Rabbeinu's passing, which we described earlier. There's a whole question about who recorded the psukim of Moshe Rabbeinu's passing. Because if Moshe Rabbeinu recorded it, isn't that a lie? Isn't there a principle that Moshe v'sarasso emes? Isn't that a song that we're going to sing on Simchas Torah? Moshe emes v'sarasso emes. If that's the case, how could Moshe Rabbeinu write something that's false? So this is something that the Gemara, I believe in Baba Basra, talks about. Um, and it, um, I think we referenced it in a recent week in Parsha Panorama as well, um, whether Yehoshua wrote those final words. But if that's true, how can the Torah earlier have described that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote full Sifrei Torah scrolls? Um, and you can, uh, and then the, the Gemara has to suggest a very cryptic answer that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote the words in some very vague form, and Yoshua sort of finished them and wrote it in a clearer form. That maybe Moshe Rabbeinu wrote it in some coded form. There's a Ramban and there's a Vilna Gon on that Gemara, um, and all, all of which is just beyond the scope of this shear. But what is within the scope of this shear is the very next section, and that is Moshe Rabbeinu's eulogy, which we spoke about earlier. That after Moshe Rabbeinu goes up to die, the Torah tells us that there was, in fact, and there never will be, a Navi like Moshe Rabbeinu ever um, in Klal Yisrael, um, Lokam Kemosha, and um, who did all these incredible things. Um, the, the Chumash describes at length, um, with at least a, a couple of psukim, um, to describe 
the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu, talks about his age, talks about how he never, um, you know, he was never sapped of his physical strength, um, and that it talks about how he was the closest with Hashem, speaking to him, upon him, upon him, and all the things that he did, the osos, the mofsim, um, that, that, that happened against Paro and Mitzrayim, and then there's the Yad HaChazaka, the great hand, Uchalamar HaGadol, and all the great awesomeness, Asher Asa Moshe, which Moshe did, before the eyes of all Israel, and that is when we say Chazak, Chazak, Venes Chazik. And then, of course, we know what happens next. We go back to Bereshus. Now, what's interesting is we're going to see is that maybe we come back to Bereshus a little bit earlier than we think we do. What do I mean? Stay tuned. But in the meantime, those are the sections. The Birchas Moshe, which has its intro, the main part, and has a little epilogue. Then we have the second section, which is Moshe Rabbeinu's passing. And then third, we have the eulogy describing the very end, the last moments, which once again, why does that need to be here? Okay, so let's go back to just the general um, uh, Birchas Moshe. We have um, the Shvatim being listed. Moshe Rabbeinu has a, a blessing for each one, with the exception of... Seemingly, Shimon. Shimon is absent. The question is, why don't we find Shimon's name? So, there is a classical answer that's suggested by both Rashi and the Ibn Ezra. They both mention two particular points. One is some connection to Sheva Yehuda, and another, uh, po- another point that we happen to know about Sheva Shimon is Sheva Shimon's complicity um, and involvement in the sin of Baal Peor, which we witnessed in Parshas Balak and the, um, the beginning of Parshas Pinchas, we know that Zimri was one of the main culprits. Uh, he was a tribal leader of Shimon, and he was with a Midianite princess named Cosby. And this was obviously a very terrible time for all of Klaistral, but especially Shevet Shimon. So they both mentioned these two points. So what do they mention about these two points? That, um, and lest you think that the whole issue here is that we neglected to bless Shimon because we're upset about something Shimon did, it's not exactly what happened. What happened was, because of the plague against Klaistral, uh, there were there are many casualties, great toll taken on Shevet Shimon. And because of that toll, Shimon's number... Uh, Shimon's numbers had diminished by so much that the tribe basically diminished and they became subsumed within Sheva Yehuda. And therefore, when Moshe Rabbeinu blesses Sheva Yehuda, really Shimon, who also would end up living in Yehuda's territory, they would supposedly receive all the blessings designated to Yehuda. Those were for Sheva Shimon as well. That's the approach that's offered by Rashi and Ibn Ezra, and really all of these Shvatim would be included. Now, the Ramban actually, um, he counters. The Ramban doesn't like this approach. The Ramban's approach does include a similar idea about Shevet Shimon having been diminished, but he does not explain that Shimon was nonetheless blessed with Yehuda, but he does explain that Shimon was smaller, and he, he starts off with a rule that whenever we have the Shvatim, they're always 12. Right? The question is always then, do we include Shevet Levi? Do we break Shevet Yosef down into Ephraim and Menashe? Sometimes we find um, different variations of this 12, but there's always 12, even though we know in reality there are actually 13. But we always count them as 12 for reasons that are also beyond the scope of this year. But the Ramban says that since there are always 12, Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't going to bless more than 12. 
what that leaves then is uh, why would we have a special um, bracha for Levi? And you could ask, you could you could answer by suggesting, well, why doesn't Levi deserve it? And maybe for the needs of conquering land, which is what which is one of the real themes at the end of the Torah is Bnei Israel entering Eretz Israel. And if that's the case, so then the, then the question you have to ask is, well, who's relevant? So certainly, um, uh, certainly uh, Menashe and Ephraim, who for these intents and purposes are different shvatim, so for their different needs, they also needed to be blessed separately. And now when it comes to um, Sheva Shimon, so even though Sheva Leva wouldn't be inheriting land in Eretz Yisrael, and I don't remember how if, if the Ramban focuses so much on the inheritance of land in Eretz Yisrael, but what he does focus on is the fact that we see from the Birchas Yaakov that Shimon, or at least Shimon and Levi, or one of the two of them was going to be prone to some kind of diminishment, right? When Yaakov chastised Shimon and Levi and said they were going to be divided and split up, so the way that that, um, that that manifests itself for Shimon was the diminishing in numbers. And a lot of it um, is based on decisions made by Levi and Shimon and their tribes, respectively. And it just ended up being that because of that, Shimon, did, and Shimon ended up being smaller. And in fact, in this counting, in, the, in, the, in these brachos, Shimon was neglected. Now, it could be as, as, as Klal, again, because they were so small, you can make the argument also that, um, that it does connect to their being subsumed in Sheva Yehuda. But um, because of that, Shimon was just left out of this blessing. And you could say that's also maybe, in a sense, part of the punishment that Shimon is a tribe and not having redeemed themselves up until this point, um, that's, that's, that's what they would get in, um, as a consequence. That in this particular point in the Torah, they were uh, not included in the brachos. You could um, uh, see the Ramban inside to see exactly what he says. Um, but... Um, different um, Farshim give different suggestions to account for the absence of the mention of Shimon. Okay, so now what, another thing I want to address is Moshe Rabbeinu's actual last words, at least the ones that are recorded in the Torah, right? Because Moshe Rabbeinu's last words, we, most people don't really know what those last words are. And as I mentioned earlier, they are vague. And because of all the fanfare surrounding the very end of the Torah and just surrounding Simcha's Torah at large and the, the, the larger Vazos HaBracha, we don't really think so much about the last words recorded from Moshe Rabbeinu. And if we were to look at them, we would be like, you know, these are interesting last words. And it's only, again, it's, it's, it's really because they, the, the, the words themselves, they don't seem necessarily like the most inspiring message, and they're, they're seemingly forgettable because of how how vague they and cryptic they really are. But after blessing Shevet Asher, the last one that he blesses, um, not for now, um, the, the, to address the order, this is the Mepharshim that do address the order. Um, I, I believe Rashi, I mean, Rashi does address the order as well. Right now, the last thing he says is, in Kokel Yishurin, there's no one like the, the, the God of Yishurin, which is us, the Israel. He rides the heavens at your assistance, and his majesty, and in his majesty, he rides the skies. As an abode of the God of old, and below are the arms of the world, he drove the enemy away from before you, and he said, Destroy. Some kind of a description of God driving away the enemy. Okay. Thus Israel shall dwell securely. 
um, and and in solitary, Ein Yaakov, the likeness of Yaakov, El Eretz Dagan Vitirosh, the land that is of grape and wine, uh, or grain and wine, sorry, Afshim of Yarfutala, and its heavens shall drip with dew. So this sounds like the Bnei Israel getting to dwell in Eretz Israel. so the enemies are going to be driven out, and the Bnei Israel are going to get in. Ashrecha Yisrael, and praiseworthy are Yisrael, Mikamocha Am Nosha, who is like you, people delivered by Hashem. Or, or, or saved by Hashem. Magain Ezrecha, the shield of your help, Asher Cherev Gavosecha, and who is the sword of your grandeur. And the enemy is going to try to deceive you or lie to you. But you're going to trample on their high places. So a little bit vague, whatever that means, but it has something to do with um, praising us, praising Hashem simultaneously. Describing the Bnei Israel somehow entering the land and the enemies are going to be driven out. And okay, it sounds like a nice bracha. We don't really have anywhere in Chumash where it's explicit that Moshe Rabbeinu is saying goodbye to everyone or anything like that. But those are the last words we get out of Moshe Rabbeinu. So the question is, what does it all mean? Like, it's, it's all poetic. It takes the same poetic form as the Birchas Moshe. You know, we, we spoke about poetic form in Chumash with Parshas Hazinu. And now we have it again. We have this, we have, so in the penultimate Parsha in the Torah and in the ultimate Parsha, the last Parsha in the Torah. So we have um, these, um, these poetic um, lyrical verses. But in this case, these are Moshe Rabbeinu's last words that the Torah records. So it would pay to you know, try to get an understanding of what it means. And I gave you a little bit of the Pashup shot, but there are still some vague expressions there. And you could probably survey the Mepharshim for all sorts of suggestions, but I want to offer you a suggestion that I observed, and I think it goes back to the theme of it's not the end, it's really just the beginning. And what do I mean? So if you look really closely at some of the buzzwords. There are some important buzzwords in these last words of Moshe Rabbeinu. And they are very telling of, well, I guess they could be telling of many things, but I want to suggest they are telling of a, of a, of a hidden story that Moshe Rabbeinu is trying to remind us of, to, to, to use some of that uh, critical reading, the literary form to explain some very vague psukim in the Torah. Here, the Chumash talks about, once again, he talks about the uniqueness of Hashem. He starts off by saying there's an inculcation, there's no one like Hashem. Then it talks about Hashem's abode. And some of the important buzzwords, so it calls Hashem the Elokei Kedem, the God of old. When we think of Kedem, we think of really old, like going back in time. And I believe Moshe Rabbeinu is actually telling us to travel back in time. And, when he, and what does he want us to see when he, when he has us travel back in time? So let's keep going and hold on tight. So Moshe Rabbeinu continues that, um, so again, you know, the God of old, and what does Hashem do? He drives out the enemy, Vayigaresh, keep that word in mind, and he says, destroy. And then the Pasuk tells us again that Vayishkon Yisrael, the Yisrael gets to dwell securely. So someone's being driven out and someone's being stationed in their place, it seems, right? We are replacing the, the, the Goyim who are, who are um, inhabiting Amaret's Canaan. In which is our land, Eretz Yisrael. And then Hash, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu praises us. He says, Asherecha Yisrael, no one's like you. And you've got Hashem on your side, essentially. And he refers to Hashem as the shield of your help and also the sword of your grandeur. So this is the way that Hashem is described. Now, why is all this important? So the, the four buzzwords that caught my attention were the words Kedem, um, Vayigoresh, Vayishkon, and Cherev. 
why are these words important to me? So as somebody who leaned the Parsha before, someone who leaned Parshas, I'll tell you in a second, these four buzzwords come up really early on in the Torah, and when we think about Kedem, when we think about really, really going back to ancient times, ancient history, that's where I believe Moshe Rabbeinu is pointing us, in the direction of all the way back to Bereshus. Because here in Bereshus, or I should say there in Bereshus, where we're going to be very, very soon, we have the story of someone who is driven out of somewhere, someone else is placed and stationed in that spot in, 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 instead of them, and the Chumash there describes also Kedem, they're referring to eastward, though the Midrash um, gives different explanations to talk about how they were sent away from Kedem, meaning the ancient one, the Eloke Kedem, the god of old, and the, the one that was placed in their spot was in fact given a sword to hold on to. So obviously I'm referring to the story of Adam and Chava being driven out of Gan Eden, where the Chumash uses the same word, Vayigoresh, that he sent them away. And similar to the word Vayishkon, we have Vayashkain, that Hashem stationed the Kruven, the guardian angels, to stand in the way, blocking the tree of life in Gan Eden. And, um, and so and Adam and Chava were sent in the direction of east. They were sent Kedem word, or Mikedem, I should say, they were sent westward from Kedem, and the Kruvim, the angels, who were um, stationed blocking the tree of life, were given a sword, a cherev, to hold on to. So why would Mushrabenu, if he is doing this in fact, why, if Mushrabenu is trying to remind us of the first real narrative in history, the story of Adam and Chava, so why would he be pointing us in that direction here at this point? And so the answer, I think, has to do with another thing that Moshe Rabbeinu points out here, and that is that in Kokel Yeshurun, there's no one quite like God who rides the heavens. What's interesting is if you go back to the narrative in Gan Eden, we actually find that Hashem does in fact tell us that there is someone who is like God. Who is like God? He says, that mankind actually is like God, being given the ability to... Uh, or, be, or having seized the ability to choose between Tov and Ra, knowing Tov and Ra is something that's godly. And in fact, this was something that the Nachash convinced Adam and Chava that they can get, they can be godly. That's what they were told in Bereshis, and that's in fact what God admitted in Bereshis. And yet here at the end of the line, in Vizos HaBarach, Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, there isn't quite anyone like Hashem. Ain't Kokel Yishurin. There's no one like Hashem. And yet Moshe Rabbeinu comes back in the end and says, Mikam Chayisrael, essentially. He says, who is like you? Right? Moshe Rabbeinu's words were, So there seems to also, in a sense, be a little bit of mixed messaging from Moshe Rabbeinu. On the one hand, there's no one like us, but there's also nobody like the people of Israel. So what's Moshe Rabbeinu's point? So I think, as we are focusing on life after Moshe Rabbeinu, we are, in fact, getting to the death of Moshe Rabbeinu, the eulogy of Moshe Rabbeinu, what life is going to be like without Moshe Rabbeinu, and what living in Eretz Yisrael is going to be like. They're about to divide the land. Moshe Rabbeinu just addressed all of the tribes. Moshe Rabbeinu is teaching the Bnei Yisrael about how to prepare for re-entering Hashem's garden. And that's what Eretz Yisrael essentially is. What Hashem is going to do to the Canaanite nations is exactly what he did to Adam and Chava. He kicks them out, and then he's going to station in guardian angels. Except this time, we, the Bnei Israel, are the guardian angels of the land. And if we treat it the right way, we will get to stay there. If we guard it and protect it, then great. Otherwise, if we mess up the way Adam and Chava also did, so then 
we're not going to stay there for a very long time. And the question is, how will we know the right way to guard it? What's the mindset that we need? And the answer is we have to recognize that, yes, in many ways we are like God, and in many ways we are not like God. Yes, we are like God. We have the ability to choose. And we are a very unique nation because because um, uh, Klal Yisrael is the nation of Hashem, Hashem's firstborn, who abides by Hashem's Torah. Yes, we use our ability to choose, but specifically to choose the will of God. Right, um, with the battle for autonomy, as um, um, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs once put it, um, and he, um, others before him said it, but, but he, he put it very nicely. And the idea is essentially that autonomy, or at least in this case, Bechira, is not about the freedom to do what we want, but it's the ability to do what we ought to do. Uh, not what we want to do, but what we ought to do. And that is essentially the ticket to staying in Eretz Yisrael, making the right decisions in serving Hashem, recognizing that we are not quite like Hashem, as much as the Nachash wants us to think that. Right? It's interesting that at the very end of this, um, this blessing, Moshe Rabbeinu gives them this cryptic message that someone's going to try to lie to you. The enemy's going to lie to you. What, you're, what are you going to do? You're going to stomp on their, on their high places, or on their arrogant ones. What was interesting was that although they um, sort of had their own gaiva, or at least Adam had his own gaiva in Gan Eden, trying to be like God, right? That's that. That was one of mankind's big mistakes, and yet Hashem says the only way to win is if you stomp on the snake, right? You know, I mean, he's going to try to bite your heel, but you're going to stomp on him, or stomp on his head, and in a sense, that's actually what Hashem. Char- or, or what Moshe is charging the Bnei Israel to do at this point, saying you will succeed so long as you are Hashem's people. Right, as long as Hashem is the source of your grandeur and it's not divorced from Him, it's not in competition with Hashem. If you try to compete with Hashem, you're not going to win. And this is an important message for Moshe Ben to tell them because what we're going to find is a lot of competition against Hashem when the Bnei Israel enter the land. But those who stay true, those who recognize their roots, those who recognize their origins, will will have you know they'll be they'll have the ability to live out their destiny as Hashem's people in Hashem's land. And so Moshe Rabbeinu taking us a little bit full circle. So that's, that, 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 that's one, uh, one important takeaway where Moshe Rabbeinu brings us back to the beginning. But then we get to Moshe Rabbeinu's eulogy, which takes the form of an interesting reference to Moshe Rabbeinu's, um, to Moshe Rabbeinu's career highlights, which Rashi actually, in fact, highlights for us, describing all the different deeds. So for example... When the Chumash tells us about the Yada Chazaka, so says Rashi, what was that Yada Chazaka that Moshe Rabbeinu did? The stro- had a, Moshe Rabbeinu manifest a strong hand? The fact that he received the Torah and the Luchos in his hands. And what was the Mora Hagadol that he did? So it says some various miracles. And what did he do? That, he, um, that his heart inspired him to destroy the Luchos. So that's, that's interesting. Le'enei kol Yisrael. The Chumash um, uh, Rashi really cites, the, based on the Medrash, that well, how do we know that Le'enei kol Yisrael refers to that? Because Moshe Rabbeinu himself, in Parshas um, Akev, described his shattering of the Luchos, le'enechem, I shattered them before your eyes. Ah, so what did Moshe Rabbeinu do before the eyes of Israel? He shattered the Luchos. Okay, why is that the thing that's described as having taken place before the eyes of the Israel? Apparently, they needed to see this. And we've spoken in the past about Moshe Rabbeinu's um, decision to do that back in Parshas Kisisa. It was reviewed in Parshas Akev. And now we're going to talk about it a little bit more right now. Moshe Rabbeinu shattered the Luchos, and apparently that's the, that's the closing message of the Torah. 
as ironic as it is the closing message of the Torah, is the destruction of the Torah. And this is how we describe, and this is the eulogy for Moshe Rabbeinu at the end. Right? We're thinking about life in a world without Moshe Rabbeinu, and basically what the takeaway message is, is Moshe Rabbeinu shatters his entire life work. Right? The Torah is what Moshe Rabbeinu has spent his life living towards, and now that is destroyed. What kind of parting message is that? And if we go back to the story of the Chet Egel and try to understand the B'nai Israel's about face to the Ratzon Hashem, right? and they, they, they did it in a religious forum, they turned away from Hashem. By shattering the Luchos, Moshe Rabbeinu, we know, made this incredible statement, apparently, that not just that you don't deserve the Torah, but that the Torah has been corrupted. You have corrupted the entire thing. And apparently, the, the parting message essentially, is that there is no Torah without the Torah. Right? In a life without Moshe Rabbeinu, who was the leader, the posek of Kla Yisrael, the Talmud Chacham, the Gadol Hador, put whatever phrase you want, the Tzadik, the Chacham. Moshe Rabbeinu was the one who had, who had more than anyone else. And, of course, it was in his absence that they made the mistake. Right? They thought he was dead. What do you do when you think Moshe Rabbeinu is dead? Right? This is what Moshe Rabbeinu is to tell them as he's about to die. What do you, or, or as Moshe Rabbeinu is dead at, there, at this point in the Torah, when we read these words, Moshe Rabbeinu is not alive anymore. What is the message? And the message is, what do you do, or the question of, um, of the message is, what do you do when Moshe Rabbeinu is dead, when Moshe Rabbeinu is no longer around? And Moshe Rabbeinu's parting, or the, the parting message of the Torah, which was Moshe Rabbeinu's greatest career highlight, his accomplishment, was the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu threw down the luchos, driving from the message that there is no Torah without adherence to the Torah. There's no Torah without the Torah. He shatters the luchos. Don't think that you're going to start taking matters into your own hands and Moshe Rabbeinu is gone and somehow that's going to be the new form of the Torah. That is the Torah corrupted. Right? What they were supposed to do is they were supposed to go to Aaron and not challenge Aaron, but ask Aaron, what should we do? Go to the, great, go to the next best thing that you have, the, the, the next best posek, the closest thing that you have to the Mesorah. Why does the Torah go at lengths to describe how great Moshe Rabbeinu was if at the end of the day Moshe Rabbeinu is not alive and we don't have him anymore? Is it just to make us sad? Is it just to make us yearn for the past? Oh, we wish Moshe Rabbeinu were here? The Torah eulogizes Moshe and says, and by the way, the best thing that Moshe had ever, had ever done was he shattered the luchos and essentially said, I don't care if I'm not here. And it doesn't matter if I'm not here. You have the Torah. Or you did have the Torah. Now you don't. Now the Torah is gone, right? Because and it's because you should you should not have been concerned about whether or not Moshe Rabbeinu, the human, was there. But Moshe Rabbeinu's ideals. If you care about the ideals, the ideals of Moshe Rabbeinu as the leader of the Masora, the ideal would have been hang on to the Masora. You don't have Moshe Rabbeinu, but you have the Masora so long as you hold on to the Masora. If you let go of the Masora, you don't have a Masora. If you let go of the Torah, you don't have the Torah. It's okay if Moshe Rabbeinu is not there. But if you have someone there who's somehow going to connect you in the, as a link in the Masora, then you will be okay. But when there's no Moshe Rabbeinu, you have to think, what do you have? And the Shivrei Luchos represent that there, ha- that there has to be some kind of connection, something that keeps you there. And, you know, whether it's Aaron or whoever's still alive, in this case it's going to be Yehoshua. But Moshe Rabbeinu is, again, taking us full circle, saying, when you don't have me in front of you, when you don't have Hashem in front of you, what are you going to do? You have the Masora, you have the Ratzon Hashem. Even though you can't see Hashem, you have the Ratzon Hashem. Even though you don't have Moshe, you have the Torahs Moshe. So as we wrap up here, I want to 
take all these ideas and use them as a springboard for some further inspiration for the season of Simchas Torah and talk about a little bit what we hope to do moving forward. And I'm not talking about in this podcast, but I'm talking about in general in life as we are about to start the Torah once again. And the idea is really as follows. We finish the Torah, as I keep on mentioning, with this point about Moshe Rabbeinu shattering the Luchos. And we talked about different messages that we take from that. The idea that we don't have the Mesorah or Ratzon Hashem without the Mesorah and Ratzon Hashem. We don't have the Torah without the Torah. And I think that's certainly important. But it is also still, as I mentioned earlier, an ironic finish to the Torah. Definitely something that we would consider to be ironic when we consider the celebration of Simchas Torah, the celebration of the Siyum. And, you know, usually you like to hear a nice, inspiring and uplifting and encouraging Agadita at the end of, of finishing something. And this seems to bring back unfortunate memories. I've mentioned in the past, and this came up in the Hoshana Panorama share, the idea that we've never really had the opportunity to celebrate the Luchos Shnios, the second Luchos, and that maybe in a certain sense Simchas Torah was placed exactly where it was to pick up from Yom Kippur, to pick up at the building of the Mishkan, the home for the Luchos Shnios. Even if we can suggest that, I was lately thinking about another possibility, because in fact, the end of the Torah does not talk about the Luchos Shneos. It does talk about the Luchos Rishonos, the Luchos that were shattered, the, the, the Shaviros, the Luchos that were broken. And the question is, is there something to celebrate about that fact by itself? Right? That itself, the shattering of the Luchos, I would argue, is not worth celebrating. The return of the Luchos, maybe. So is there something to be celebrated in the shattering of the Luchos themselves? Like, is there a redeeming quality to that experience, which seems to be nothing but tragic? And so I came across an article um, on a website called Jewish Views. They spell views in a funny way. It's Jewish, then V-U-E-S dot com. And the article was titled Broken Talmud Chacham. And I will cite to you some of the things that I saw in this article, and I'll tell you what it had me thinking. So the article referred to the famous Gemara in Brachos and Davches, which refers to this particular circumstance of the broken luchos, and uses that as a raya that even a Talmud Chacham that forgets his Torah, a zakhed, who doesn't remember his learning, whether because of illness or because he had to work for Parnassah, whatever the circumstance, the point is he doesn't have his learning in him anymore, you still have to show him kavod. Why? Because even the Shvire Luchos were kept inside the Aron. We have the Luchos Shnios, but we have the Luchos Rishonos, the broken ones are kept as well. And that demonstrates at least that we at least show kavod for that kind of thing. Right, and I think in a similar vein, the, um, we have the Minog of dancing with all the Sifre Torah, even the ones that are puzzle. Everybody gets a chilek, right? We, we show everybody a certain amount of kavod on Simchas Torah. But all of that is just a matter of the redeeming quality, right? We could understand that even if, 
even if this wasn't the happiest thing, but we still take value in all of life's experiences. But what are we celebrating? And then this article pointed me to another Gemara. The Gemara in Ervin on Dafnun Dalet, which suggests that had the Luchos Rishonos not been broken, we would never have the, the, uh, the ability to forget our learning. Right? If, we, if the Luchos Rishonos were not broken, there would never be such a thing as losing our initial learning. We would learn once and then we would have it. We would retain it forever. Now this just makes the shattering of the Luchos Rishonos seem only more tragic, only more terrible, having no redeeming qualities. Right? We're celebrating the fact that now there's a reality in existence that we're able to forget our Torah. How, how can that be something worth celebrating? The fact that we're able to forget our learning. What, what was Moshe Rabbeinu putting into the Berea somehow? If, if we take the Gemara at face value, and I'm sure there are deeper lessons, but taking it at face value, what do we get from the fact that now in the Berea we have this reality that we're able to forget our learning? And here's what I think we come out with. The fact that we're able to forget our learning requires a new, re- a, new, a new requirement. It requires a new task. And that new task is Chazara. If we would just learn our Torah once and we would retain it, we would never have to come back to it. And that would be the tragedy. Because you would get it once and however you got it, that would be it. There wouldn't be no reality of, of the requirement to go back and learn it again and to learn it in a way that's more sharp than the first time, to learn in a way that you're looking at it with new eyes and re-experiencing it and then and thereby experiencing it in a new way. And the fact that we have the ability to forget our Torah, which has an obvious downside, but the upside is that we get to go back, and we have to go back to get it again, to learn it again, to get it in a way that we didn't get it before. We get to start from Beratius once again. You make a Siyamashas, and then we say Hadron, that we go through a period of Chazara. And every Chazara is like a new restoration. It's like a Tshuva, but not just a Tshuva. It's a Tshuva with a Hishadshus. And we get the opportunity to do that every year, every, every moment that we want to. We, and, and the truth is, we should do this frequently, that we should have a Seder where we're chazring the new things that we do. We don't just try to learn new. There's, there's endless Torah that we can learn, and we can always be learning new things. But you'll never get it really well unless you chazer it. And then you chazer it, and then you ask new questions, and you, and you look at it with new eyes, and there's constantly new areas of hisorus, new areas of inspiration, new areas of being able to learn and being able to be mechadesh in a way that's emistic. You learn it once and you maybe have it, maybe you don't. But you learn it twice, three times, four times, and you continually learn it. And there's constantly a hischadshus on top of... You know, when we think that, oh, when you review it, oh, it's just old stuff, old stuff, old stuff. Absolutely not. When you look at it again and again and again, there's a hischadshus if you're doing it the right way. If you're looking at it with the, with the right kinds of eyes. And that's something that we have the schus of being able to do.
we're able to learn again, and that's what connects you to, to Misora. That's what connects you to Ratzon Hashem, even when you're not so clear at first glance what Ratzon Hashem is. Even if you don't have your Rebbe there, but you chazer what your Rebbe taught you. You don't have to have Moshe Rabbeinu in front of you. He's gone. But you know what? We shatter those luchos and say, we're going to get it again. We're going to do it again, and it's going to be stronger the next time. And that's what we have the opportunity to do on Simchas Torah. And with that, I wish you a wonderful Yom Tov, a good Kfitzel, and everything good for the coming year, and constantly building and strengthening and renewing our experience with Torah. Anyway, wish you once again a wonderful Yom Tov and a wonderful year of growth and hischachos and chazara in all the Torah that we do. Thank you for joining us for the series of Parsha Panorama, Chazak Chazak Menis Chazek. And thank you for joining us here at the database.